Um, I occasionally preach here at Garden City, and uh, today I've been tasked with the passage, Acts 17, verses 10 through 15. Um, but first, I'm just going to open with a prayer. Thank you, Lord, for this sunshine and today, the blue skies. We need it as we come out of this winter. I pray that today you'll be with each of us as we go about um, the rest of our day and our week. And that as I preach, uh, your Holy Spirit will prompt what each of us need to hear from this message. And that nothing will get in the way of that. Lord, I pray that you will speak through me, you will go before me, and in Jesus' name, amen. What is it about the arts that they continue to endure? That despite the financial cuts to school districts performing arts programs, our society still spends much of our free time going to the movies, watching TV shows, reading books, listening to the symphony, attending a play, a musical, stopping in an art gallery, or doing one of my favorite things, which is attending a live um, rock concert music show. Why do the arts continue to speak to us? Some argue they bring no material value to our lives. They consider the arts to be an extracurricular that can be easily discarded. Yet, I would reason all of us in this room engage with the arts in some sort of meaningful way. And I would further propose that for most of us, despite the arts not providing us maybe financial income or a job, they nourish something much deeper within our humanity. When we read a novel, attend the symphony, watch a movie or play, eagerly buy a new album, or visit a gallery, we are participating in an experience of stories. Stories that reflect our life. Stories that give shape and expression to our emotions, our thoughts, our dreams. The arts record our history, as well as bring us comfort and validation. They can inspire us to consider something new, to create an invention, to uniquely solve a problem, to imagine a new future. In the expression of the arts, we can find our past, our present, and our future. And in doing so, our ignorance can be confronted. This is partly why the arts continue to endure, why they are so powerful and necessary. Like traveling, the arts remind us of how big the world is, how diverse and varied humans are in their practices, their beliefs, and their cultures. The arts humble us, and they help us cultivate an empathy for the other person. They remind us of the importance of humility. They confront our prejudices and diminish our biases. The arts remind us the importance of being open-minded. And that's what I want us to reflect on today, the need for us as humans and Christians to be open-minded. We start in Acts 17, verses 10 through 15. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. 
Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing, as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained at Berea. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to Paul as soon as possible, they departed. I want to focus our attention on verse 11. Notice the first two descriptions that Luke records of the people of Berea as a direct contrast to the Thessalonians. He calls them noble-minded and that they received the word with eagerness. We'll pause here and add some context. Many of the popular Bible translations use the phrase noble-minded, but it doesn't mean what you might think. In modern English, we know noble to have multiple meanings. The first is when nobles used to describe someone's social class or status. You know, we might say they're of noble birth or they're blue-blooded. The connotation is one of power, wealth, and high society. But the second meaning that we use would be to describe someone's character. The noble person has high moral principles. They have good values. They're virtuous. But neither of these descriptions are quite what Luke means by being noble-minded. Language changes and evolves over decades and centuries, and that has happened in this passage. We know Luke isn't using noble in the social class sense because Paul is speaking to everyday people. Luke is not saying they are highborn. Instead, he is speaking of their character. And in those times, a noble character meant someone who was open-minded, fair, and thoughtful. They are noble because they have an open mind, a willingness to learn. The Brayan people understand that they don't know everything, and they're comfortable changing their mind when new information is presented. Luke is praising this aspect of their character. They don't outright dismiss what is presented. They don't try to immediately argue against Paul's teaching. They properly listen, paying full attention to what is being said with an open mind. In the first century, that is what it meant to be noble-minded. You were fair, thoughtful, and had an open mind. Luke follows this description of noble-mindedness with a second description of the Brayans. They received the word with eagerness. The literal translation is all eagerness. They are 110% desiring to hear what Paul has to say. They've come to hear his teachings with a prepared mindset, an attitude of enthusiasm and intent. And that's a good attitude for the Brayans because Paul's message is no easy pill to swallow. There's a reason riots get started and he's chased out of many of the places he preaches. In our passage, Luke mentions the Thessalonians are so upset with Paul's message that once they hear he is speaking in Berea, they travel the roughly 46 miles. Y'all, that's a three-day journey to try to riot and incite a mob for a second time. You might recall this passage right before. This is when the Thessalonians drag Jason out of his house, start a riot, and try to press charges. The doubts and fears of the Thessalonians have been provoked by Paul's message. 
I have a little slide that shows the map of Thessalonica and Berea. And you'll see that Thessalonica is sort of like in the middle center, and Berea is sort of to the south. That's how much land they traverse because they're mad about what Paul has to say. Just to go to Berea, show up, and start a riot. So in those three days of travel, their anger and fear has not subsided. They've not cooled off, so they must be pretty unhappy. In our 21st century, it's hard for us to understand what exactly was so countercultural of Paul's teachings. We don't live in the same context of the Thessalonians and the Braeans. We are not in a society where, as Christians, the government will target our community or us as individuals based on our religious beliefs. We aren't under threat of being thrown in jail, forced to leave a city, or face the possibility of death because of the savior we profess. The privilege of our town, or the ability to be alive, is not dependent on any religious identity for those of us that are Christian in America. But in Thessalonica, totally different story. In Thessalonica, the wealth of the town, the freedom they were given was all from Rome. The actual lives of the individuals were in jeopardy if Rome had any inkling of a political or religious threat. And you might be thinking, well, what threats did Paul's message contain? Paul's talking about God. How is God a political threat? We live in a society where our president, our government, is not revered as a divine being. We do not have a general cultural belief that the president is a god or godlike. We may hope they're a savior, but we don't see them as the savior. At least I hope we don't revere them as such. But in Rome, in the surrounding region, that is exactly how the emperor was seen. The emperor was viewed as a possibly immortal, likely divine being that is the savior. The emperor is a universal savior whose benefactions and aid should be shared as good news to all. We've seen this language used before in the scriptures, describing the emperor Vespasian. This type of belief in the emperor is known as the imperial cult. And these descriptions happened for multiple Roman emperors. But it is also the same language we see the disciples using to proclaim Jesus. So when this passage takes place, it's under the rule of Claudius. And spoiler alert, Claudius doesn't like this language being used for anyone but him. Claudius' tenure hasn't been going so well. There have been a lot of famines in the land, and in addition, there's a fair amount of manipulation and alliances going on within his circle of influences, even including his wife. It's like an episode of Survivor, but with far greater stakes. No million dollars, just life or death. By the time Paul is visiting Thessalonica, Claudius has already expelled the Jews from Rome. He's forced them to leave the city. Now it's unclear if it was all Jewish people or just those deemed the troublemakers. But Claudius has done this as a way to help the imperial cult keep its power. He wants to return the religion of Rome, the worship of him and the imperial cult, to a position of dominance. And he feels the Jewish people are threatening the imperial cult because their religious beliefs are also being interpreted as political threats. 
the message of Jesus is spreading. He's being revered as a Messiah, the Savior, a King. And if that's true, then what does that make Claudius or any other Roman emperor? This message threatens Claudius' political rule because he is supposed to be seen as the king, the savior of the land. He is supposed to be the one that is divine and immortal and godlike, not this Jesus character. Paul and the disciples are spreading the message of a man who is the son of God, divine, immortal, the king of the world. And this is a countercultural message in the first century. And it is this message that has the Thessalonians forcing Paul to leave the city in the middle of the night to arrive in Berea for safety. It is their unwillingness to be open-minded, to hear what Paul has to say, that Luke is speaking against by contrasting their response with the Bereans. The Thessalonians are choosing to protect their privilege and their power by siding with the imperial cult by aligning themselves with the government, continuing to idolize the emperor as a god, rather than believe the message of God. If Rome, or specifically Claudius, were to find out that the Thessalonians were heeding Paul's message, it could be interpreted as a threat to the rule of Rome, and they could punish Thessalonica. Because despite Thessalonica being called a free city, they were actually very heavily dependent on Rome for their freedom. Their wealth, their privilege, their status, it was all connected to Rome's good favor towards them. And in return, Thessalonica was expected to be loyal to Rome and the emperor. To quote the character Lorelei from Gilmore Girls, those are strings, Pinocchio. Their freedom came with strings attached. You're welcome, you're welcome. Gilmore Girls, yes, pop culture matters. It's the arts, Dennis. <laughs> Their freedom comes with strings attached. It was not a true freedom. And because of this, they weren't willing to be like the Brayans, to be open to hearing a new message and examining it before making their decision. They didn't want to lose their privilege. This message of another king wasn't the only countercultural aspect of Paul's teaching. He presented a good one-two punch, two messages that were challenging and opposite of the culture. The first, of we've, as we've already said, is that Jesus is king, and the second is that Jesus' body was resurrected. I won't spend much time on this part of Paul's teaching, but suffice it to say, the intellectuals of Paul's day were hardly in any agreement about the afterlife. The most general belief was that we just cease to exist, period. Unless you were a Roman emperor, then you believe that when you die, you become a god and you join Zeus. And if that doesn't happen, you turn into a star. Can we just let that sink in for a moment? In their entitlement and their ego, emperors believe they would either join the pantheon of Greek gods or turn into a star in the sky. Wow. But beyond the emperors, the widespread belief was a ceasing to exist, a great nothingness. However, there were some small groups of people that specifically believed in the immortality of the soul and maybe going to a new universe or a new location like Sheol mentioned in the Old Testament. But the idea of a physical resurrection of a dead body was considered absurd to most Greeks and Romans 
and even some of the first century Jews. It was easier to agree that maybe the soul lives on than to assert our bodies are resurrected or what they called rejuvenated. So for the disciples to be spreading this message that not only has the true king arrived, but that his body was physically resurrected after his death, it can be two difficult concepts to sit with at the same time. I think we can all agree that if we put ourselves in the shoes of the Thessalonians and Bereans, we may wonder, is Paul a little out there? Being presented though with new ideas, especially when they're unfamiliar or we are ignorant about the issue, can lead to a lot of doubts and questions, especially if entertaining a doubt may lead us to lose our privilege, our safety, our wealth, our power or relationships. We can then be quick to react out of discomfort and fear instead of taking time to respond. In American Christian culture, we've embraced the modern and Western mindset of demanding answers and reducing questions of faith to simple statements. We neglect the complexity, the nuance, and the curiosity. We've allowed the Western ways of taking a scientific and rational approach, being cerebral and intellectual to inform what it means to understand faith. Now don't hear me wrong, having a cohesive set of beliefs and using our intellect as part of our faith is not inherently bad. The issue is when we use our scientific approach as the only way we build our faith. And if we also use it to defend against or ignore our questions and doubts. Our Western mindset is far too limiting to inform our faith alone. And we could benefit from pairing our Western thinking with the Eastern mindset that was, the Bible was written in. One of those Eastern mindsets, especially found in rabbinical teaching, was approaching the scriptures with questions. Specifically, what does this passage say or not say about the character of God? What questions arise from the reading? For in the Eastern tradition, the concept of faith was closely tied to the notion of trust. Faith was not the explanation of a truth, but instead it was rooted in a trust that emerges from relationship with God and past experiences of the church. Faith was therefore synonymous with trust, a trust in God and the Holy Spirit. I'm just going to repeat that part again because I know when I was first reading about this and writing it, my mind was like, what? I don't get it. <laughs> it kind of felt like math, which is my enemy. Faith was not the explanation of a truth, but instead rooted in a trust that emerges from relationship with God and past experiences of the church. Faith was therefore synonymous with trust, a trust in God and the Holy Spirit. Like we are told in Hebrews, faith is belief in the unseen. Somewhere along the way, we've lost this integral part of our understanding of faith. In a similar vein in the Eastern mindset, truth was not seen as only an absolute. It was also considered dynamic as well. It can be hard for our Western minds to consider how a truth can be both absolute and dynamic, unfolding and expanding over time. But this is actually evidenced in our daily lives, and we do see it in the scriptures. We just don't always recognize it as such, 
And a great example is the field of medicine. Truth has been absolute and dynamic. It has evolved and unfolded over time. The more humanity grows in collective knowledge and awareness, the more that truth can evolve and change. Same with how the truth of scripture has developed from the Old Testament to the New Testament, and even within the New Testament. When Jesus came, the Mosaic law was something we no longer had to live under. What once was true for a certain time and place was no longer true going forward. And when Jesus was healing on the Sabbath, he expanded the truth of what the Sabbath is for. These are just a few examples in scripture. A balanced faith combines the Western and Eastern mindset, the ability to be exact and open-minded, to use your intellect and trust. Now, I want to preface this next session, section with a little disclaimer. I'm going to talk a little bit about my experience in previous churches and denominations. The key word there is experience. This is what I went through and how I interpreted the world around me. It doesn't mean this is true for everyone who were in those same unnamed churches and denominations. But I just want to throw that out there. In my previous churches, any hint of a question or a doubt was taboo. You were expected to accept that first answer to any question you had. And you weren't allowed to ask follow-up questions. If you expressed any sense of doubt, disagreement, or even questioning what was said, you were verbally reprimanded and had the, God, the word of God used against you. The word of God would be used as a defense quickly, reactively, and also sometimes too neatly summarized. Or it would be used as a weapon when, you didn't, when they didn't have a neat answer, which results in you know, feelings of shame and stifles the growth of a meaningful faith. It teaches you your questions aren't welcome here. In my experience, the church had been seduced by fear. Fear of losing one's salvation or faith. Fear that the church would get smaller. Fear that those numbers would drop. And that fear was more important to submit to than developing one's faith, learning how to work out one's salvation, trusting the Holy Spirit and the grace of God to protect the one with doubts and questions. There was no tolerance for any questions. Similarly, the Thessalonians had the fear of losing their freedom and privilege if they entertained that message of Paul. They valued their status and power more than considering what Paul had to say. We see this fear in the response to Paul's teaching when they chase down Jason in the previous passage inside a riot and Paul has to flee for safety. Nothing in our lives should be placed of higher importance than that of the gospel. If I hadn't doubted if I hadn't asked questions in my previous denominations, I wouldn't be allowed to be up here preaching. I wouldn't be at a place that affirms women preachers. I distinctly remember a time in high school when I was visiting a fringe church and they had a guest speaker come in and it was a woman who led the altar call. I felt sick to my stomach. That's how deeply I was taught and shamed very specific portions of the Bible that are incorrect. 
I actually talked to the pastor afterwards and was like, you had a woman preacher. That's not cool. It's not okay. I was very wrong at the time. (laughs) That was what I had been taught. And it was because I wasn't allowed to doubt, is that passage possibly being used out of context? You know? So doubts are important. And I'd like us to take some time to explore this topic of doubt. I know that might make y'all's anxiety rise and be like, oh no, doubt, we can't talk about that. But it's okay. I'd like us all to take a few deep breaths and then we'll get into it. And I say this because we know that deep breathing sends a little message through your whole body saying, calm down, calm down, calm down. So let's just take a few deep breaths. I think for those of us scarred by fundamental culture, it's best to first define the word doubt. All that word means is a feeling of uncertainty or a lack of conviction. A feeling of uncertainty, a lack of conviction. It's not so scary sounding now, is it? What if I said that doubting can be good for our faith? that doubting can actually make our convictions stronger. Marty Solomon, a teacher and an author who was once an evangelical fundamentalist pastor, but has since left that tradition, he writes in his book entitled, Asking Better Questions of the Bible, this passage. I believe we should be free to doubt and to let those doubts carry us into deeper wonder and curiosity Our doubts shouldn't scare us, but neither should we embrace them as a place to settle, a permanent state of being. Doubts are invitations, opportunities to continue the journey of discovery. God has always honored and respected those who refuse to let go. Even when the wrestling results in a limp, it also brings about a new identity that carries us and generations after us through the story of God, with more intimacy and vibrancy in our faithfulness. Our wrestling can make us more convinced, not less, of the Bible's inspiration. And I agree with him. In the same way that our relationships with others become stronger and more trusting when we face conflict well, so can be said about our doubts and our questions. Let us also not forget, we will not be the first people or the last to lack conviction, to feel uncertain about whatever we encounter in scripture. We can look to the stories of the Bible to see that God loved those who doubted, who feared, who had questions, who felt uncertain and had other plans. And not only did God love them, but they were esteemed as leaders of our faith and presented as examples for us to learn from and look up to. I've listed just a few that had some type of doubt or questions. You have Moses in the Old Testament being tasked with leading the Israelites to freedom, and he blatantly asked God in Scripture, how can I be a leader or a speaker? I have a stutter. Abraham in the Old Testament, Zechariah in the New Testament, both of them 
don't believe God at all when God says, I'm going to give you children. And in fact, Abraham tries to take matters into his own hands, tries to, you know, get one of his slaves pregnant because it's not going to happen with his wife. Jonah questions God's plan. God says, go to Nineveh. I have work for there to you, for you to do. Jonah scoffs and is like, huh, no, that's not going to work. I'm going to go this way instead. Jacob wrestles with God and walks away forever changed. Peter, while walking on water towards Jesus, loses that feeling of a conviction, begins to feel uncertain that he, you know, thinking, oh no, I'm going to actually drown. How is this happening? And Thomas, Thomas not only needed to see Jesus' resurrected body, but he needed to touch it. He needed to put his fingers in the holes in Jesus' hands for him to believe that Jesus' resurrected body was real. If you find yourself feeling uncertain, lacking conviction, having doubts, you're in good company. Our faith can deepen if we allow ourselves to complete the process as evidenced by the brains. Being open-minded, expressing our doubts, being eager to learn about God, and thoughtfully examining the scriptures for truth. It's these practices that strengthen our convictions and help us live more in line with our beliefs. But I do wanna name that it's easy for us to get stuck in our doubts. Sometimes it feels like our unanswered questions can loom larger than the truth in which we believe. Our doubts can produce a feeling of a vortex, something beyond our control engulfing us. And uh, when we come to, we're not in Kansas anymore. And that's a Wizard of Oz reference for anyone who doesn't know. It's when the tornado takes Dorothy away from Kansas to some weird nonsensical world. Which, fun fact, I've never actually seen the film in full. So um, don't tell my undergraduate university they might have to revoke my minor in popular culture. When this vortex happens, it becomes easier to lose sight of what we know. We can begin to let our beliefs unravel by questioning everything and getting stuck in this existential dread. We can let the fear take over. But the brains had a way to guard against that vortex of overwhelm and paralysis. Let's see what we can learn about facing questions and doubts from the brains. How did they balance their open mind without losing their faith? Well, Luke tells us. Back in verse 11, we see a verb Luke uses to describe the behavior of the Brayans, and it's the third description of them. It's that they examined the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. This examination is their response to their doubts, their questions, their uncertainty. They examine the information provided. They examine the scriptures. The Greek word that has been translated as examine was often used in the context of law or a legal process, specifically a trial. They are conducting an unbiased investigation to get to the truth. They show us that you can have strong convictions and be open-minded. Being open-minded means having the ability to consider other perspectives and trying to be empathetic to other people or putting yourself in their shoes, as we say, even when you disagree with them. Again, you can be open-minded and have strong convictions. 
Their open-mindedness was not gullibility. They will not agree to just anything because someone says so. Instead, they subject Paul's message, the word of God, to scrutiny. They meet regularly, Luke says daily, to examine the scriptures to see if Paul's teachings are in accordance with what the scriptures say. This is the way they approach scripture and bring fairness or balance to their willingness to hear new information. Yes, they were open-minded, willing to be wrong and learn new ideas, presumably comfortable with doubts and questions. But they didn't just passively receive new information and then go on with their day, or alternatively, have a question, a doubt, and ignore it, or let their questions paralyze them and get stuck. Instead, they made time to hear and to respond. And it was their response was to examine, to scrutinize the scriptures. The Brayans are good students. If we were to brainstorm what makes a successful, successful student, we would see the Brayans contain those qualities. Open-mindedness, a willingness to ask questions, a comfortability with doubts, an attitude of curiosity, and thinking critically by examining the information in front of them. In my career as a mental health therapist, I try to keep a mind of curiosity when meeting with clients. I have found it's important to embody a posture of inquiring without assumption, limiting as much prejudice and presumption as possible, because it only hurts the clients in their healing journey if I fill in the gaps of their story with all of my assumptions, with how I experience the world, with my values, my beliefs, my emotions. What if we approached the Bible with this level of open-mindedness? Or even received our questions and doubts with that same attitude of curiosity? There's a lot in the Bible, in the character of God, in the teachings of Jesus, to be curious about and unravel. And we see that God is faithful to those who question or feel uncertain. Church, to have questions and doubts is to be human. To be curious and filled with wonder is part of our design. There's nothing sinful or wrong in experiencing a doubt or wrestling with a question or lacking certainty. I give you permission to let go of the belief that to doubt is to be a bad Christian. And I encourage our church to be more comfortable with the unknown, to be willing to ask the hard questions and to provide a safe space to express our uncertainty. Luke is encouraging us that all believers can search the scriptures and that us ordinary people can understand the Bible with eagerness, diligence, and relying on God. Even in our doubts, we can trust the Spirit is at work and unfolding the truth of God within our lives. The brains are noble because they seek teaching, they receive the message with an open mind, and they examine the scriptures to find the truth. May we learn from these brothers and sisters in Christ. I'd like to close with a poem that Katie Long forwarded to me that she received from Sarah Cave, two wonderful members of our Garden City Church. I think it's a great benediction for those of us who struggle to be comfortable with doubts and questions. The poem is from a French Jesuit priest and a scientist, Father Teilhard de Chardin, and it is entitled Patient Trust. Above all, trust in the slow work of God. We are quite naturally impatient in everything to reach the end without delay.
we should like to skip the intermediate stages. We are impatient of being on the way to something unknown, something new. And yet, it is the law of all progress that it is made by passing through some stages of instability and that it may take a very long time. And so, I think it is with you. Your ideas mature gradually. Let them grow. Let them shape themselves without undue haste. Don't try to force them on, as though you could be today what time, that is to say, grace and circumstances, acting on your own goodwill, will make of you tomorrow. Only God could say what this new spirit, gradually forming within you, will be. Give our Lord the benefit of believing that his hand is leading you, and accept the anxiety of feeling yourself in suspense and incomplete. Amen. <laughs>